0: the Christian faith is founded on facts. Things that actually occurred in real space and in real time. And the most important of these events, of course, that actually occurred in real space and in real time is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, as Christians, our faith is tied to the fundamental historical reality that Jesus actually walked on this earth, that he actually lived, that he actually died, and that he actually rose again to life. Now, as we begin this morning, let's just be clear that believing that Jesus was killed and buried and brought back to life does not make one a Christian. The historical realities about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection are vital, but they don't give the meaning or don't give meaning to why Jesus died and why he came back to life. In other words, History is important. Things that happened historically are significant. But history does not tell us why those things are important and why those things are so significant. Theology is what tells us why those things are significant. The Bible tells us why those things are significant. So, it is important to understand that our Christian faith rests on historical realities, but those historical realities alone are not enough to save anyone. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, writing to the church in Corinth, writes this Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you and you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes from what was likely a common phrase or a common statement or a common creed, if you will, already in existence at the time in which Paul writes. He writes that Christ died, not just historically, not just literally, but he writes that Christ died for our sins. That's a theological statement, not just a historical one. Accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And friends, this is the core of Christianity. That Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the With the scriptures. The Bible predicted that all of this would happen. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, you are spiritually alive because Jesus is alive. Amen? Because Jesus is alive, salvation is accomplished. Just look at Luke 24 with me. This chapter, if you have a Bible like mine, it probably says at the beginning, the subheading says, the resurrection, and I know for the last number of weeks, I've kind of taught about maybe why sometimes the subheadings aren't so good. We were discussing in our small group this week, and they were... Kind of teasing a little bit that maybe we should just start erasing all the subheadings out of our Bibles because those aren't actually inspired anyway. They're just given there to help us and sometimes they get in the way. Well, this is an opportunity, hear this, where a subheading is helpful because it reminds us that this section is all about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Resurrection Sunday after all. And so this morning I want us to look at Luke Twenty-four. We're going to look at almost all of Luke twenty-four, and so with that much ground to cover, uh, we're not going to kind of fly at treetop level as we normally do. Instead, we're going to cruise at about ten thousand feet, and just going to I want to point out the big ideas and the big things that we see from ten thousand feet as we cruise through Luke twenty-four, and. If it's helpful as you're taking notes this morning to kind of know where we are going, we're going to have kind of two primary emphases this morning. First is because Jesus is alive. So we're going to focus on the fact that Jesus is alive. Secondly, salvation is accomplished. So we're going to use that phrase because Jesus is alive, salvation is accomplished. Let's begin with Jesus being alive. Jesus is alive. Charles Dickens began his famous book, The Christmas Carol, with these words that you may remember. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Dickens begins here because if we don't understand that Marley was dead, then little else in the narrative will make sense. Now, Luke wrote long before Charles Dickens, but Luke 24 could begin with those same words kind of in parentheses. Jesus was dead to begin with. There was no doubt about that. The executioners had taken him off the cross, buried him in a borrowed tomb, sealed the entrance and set a guard. His friends had gone home grieving and hopeless. And that is to be understood or else little else in Luke 24 will make sense. But as was read for us by Leslie just a few minutes ago, Jesus did not stay dead. In fact, Luke gives us three scenes here in Luke 24, all demonstrating the fact that Jesus is alive. Scene one, we could call the empty tomb. It's really verses one through 12. It's the section of scripture that's already been read for us this morning. So the day was Sunday. The time was early in the morning. The people or the cast of characters involved was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and some other women. What happened here in scene one? Well, these faithful women arrive at Jesus' tomb early in the morning. Their mission and goal was to honor Jesus' body by putting spices on his burial wraps. This would have been common. What was not common was what happened next the stone that the night before had covered the entrance of the tomb was rolled aside and when they went into the tomb it was empty this must have been a shock to these women who gathered at the tomb to anoint Jesus's body the stone is rolled away and they go inside and the tomb is empty what happened to Jesus And as they're reeling from this and trying to begin to comprehend what in the world is going on, two men appeared by them in what Luke describes in verse 4 as dazzling apparel. These are messengers from God, and their message to these shocked women was this, verse 5, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now that's an odd question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Of course, no one would seek the living among the dead if they actually thought that there were living people there. But they knew that Jesus was dead. Many of them had seen Jesus on the cross. They had seen him die. They had seen the place where he was buried. They knew that he was dead. They knew that the Romans were experts at crucifixion. They were PhDs at torture and murder. Like They knew that Jesus was dead. Maybe some had been there when The tip of the spear had pierced Jesus' side and blood and water flowed, a sign that clearly the heart was no longer mixing these two elements. But these messengers from God imply that they, the women, should know that Jesus was alive. And they give their reason in verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Remember how he told you when he was in Galilee, all the way back in Galilee. Remember how Jesus told you that he would be killed, but after three days, he would come back to life. Do you remember that? it's important for us to remember as well that Jesus' life was not stolen from him or taken from him in a strange plot twist that God the Father had not predicted. No. Jesus willingly surrendered his life as a part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God the Father before there was time. In fact, several weeks after this event of Jesus' resurrection, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, would include these words in his very first sermon. Men of Israel, he said, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus knew that this would happen. He predicted it. Luke 9, the son of man must suffer, Jesus said, many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Long before Jesus' arrest, he predicted that he would die and come back to life. Or Matthew 17, again, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Or Mark eight thirty one, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Was it Babe Ruth, I don't know, I should remember, that used to take his bat and point over the wall? Like that's where the ball's going? Jesus called his shot. Jesus said, the Son of Man, me, the divine Son of God, will be killed and will be dead for three days and then will rise from the dead. I'm going to die but do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid because I will come back to life after three days and then as only God can do, he did it, he died and he came back to life and he still is alive today. Now there's more that we could say here but we need to move to scene two, scene two. We could call scene two the Emmaus Road. If scene one was the empty tomb, scene two is the Emmaus road. Look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So it is about seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which would have taken the average person in Jesus' day a little over two hours, two, two and a half hours to walk that far. And here are two men walking, they're talking with each other about the recent events that have happened in Jerusalem when Jesus comes up and joins them. But they don't know that it's Jesus. So he asks them, what, what are you talking about? And Cleopas, one of the two, answers him, like, have you been living under a rock, right? Which I guess, in a way, he had been living behind a rock, right, but... Have you been living under a rock? Don't you know the things that have been going on in Jerusalem? And Jesus responds with an answer, something like, "Like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What sorts of things? So these two men begin to share about this man, Jesus, who was thought to be a prophet, who did amazing signs, but who was executed at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And now, after three days, some have reported his body missing, while others are saying that he is actually raised again, that he is alive. Remember the irony. Verse 16 says that these two are kept from recognizing that the man that they're talking to is actually Jesus. This is... Better than the best episode of Undercover Boss, right? Like, Jesus is walking with them. They're describing Jesus to Jesus, not realizing it, in fact, is Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 25. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And the eyes and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. So Jesus responds to these two men by essentially saying like don't you get it this is what the prophets pointed towards for hundreds of years They repeatedly predicted that the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer, would suffer, that he would die, and that he would come back to life. And then Jesus begins with Moses, or the books of Moses, Genesis, and he follows on all through what we would call the Old Testament, showing them how the Old Testament was preparing the way for Christ, how the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus Christ, like I have, we have no idea how long this Bible study lasted. But this was the goat, right, of all Bible studies. The greatest of all time, as mile after mile, Jesus works his way, text by text, page by page, through the Old Testament, showing them how all of it is preparing the world for his arrival and for his work. Like, oh, what a Bible study that must have been. There was something in Jesus' teaching, something in his divine way of opening scripture that according to verse uh, 32, made the hearts of these two men burn within them as Jesus opened the text. But still, they didn't recognize him. I think you wonder what they thought, you know, later on they're saying our hearts were burning as he was opening this, you know, I don't they're reaching for the roleades, like what what this is just indigestion? Like what, what's burning? And then they see Jesus and they understand. And not long after they arrive at their destination, they're about to eat dinner. Jesus breaks the bread and he prays. He gives thanks to the Father. And it's at that moment, verse 31 says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanishes from their sight. The symbolism here is significant. In the Old Testament, you might remember God the Father provided for his people as they wandered through the wilderness. He was their provision. He was their daily bread. In fact, later, Jesus would teach his followers to pray, asking God for our daily bread. And then later, Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. You might remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. And it's here that Jesus is revealed in the breaking of bread. As these two men attest to in verse 35, as Jesus breaks the bread, as Jesus, the bread of life, whose body was broken for them, breaks the bread, ah. God gives them sight. There's also something in this text interesting to the fact that in verse 28, Jesus acts as if he's going to pass by the town where they are staying and continue on his way, which seems to mirror... The time that Jesus walked on the water out to his disciples. Remember, they're in the boat in the midst of the storm. They're scared to death. Jesus comes to them walking on water. And in Mark, it records that Jesus was about to pass them by. And both of those events of Jesus kind of passing by seem to mirror somehow God, Yahweh, passing by Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. You remember after Moses asks to see God's glory. And then God's glory passes by Moses. And in all three of those passages, all three of the passing by moments of God, the very next thing that happens is that the glory of God is revealed. So in Exodus, God passes by, and then he declares his divine identity to Moses. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus means to pass by his disciples as they're in the boat, and the disciples see him, and they're terrified. And Jesus responds literally by saying, it is I, or literally, ego I I am. And here in Luke 24, Jesus acts as as if he is going to pass them by. And then the next thing that happens is he breaks the bread and he is revealed for who he truly is. Christ. Which is why I don't think that these two men merely acknowledge that, oh yeah, the guy we read about in the Jerusalem times is the same guy that was walking with us. Oh, that's the guy. Because Jesus refers to Jesus as the Christ in verse 26. He refers to himself as the Christ in verse 26. And then they see throughout the Old Testament how the Christ was prophesied and predicted that he would suffer and die and rise from the dead. And then the hearts of these men burn within them as Jesus is teaching them. They're not merely acknowledging that, oh yeah, the guy that came into our home, the guy we walked with, that's that Jesus guy. They're, I believe, also acknowledging that Jesus actually is the Christ brings us to scene three. The locked room. Look at verse 33. And they rose at that same hour. These are the the two on the Emmaus road. They arose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them, what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So these two men who were on the road to Emmaus Disregarding their likely fatigue, hurry back now to Jerusalem, and they find where the eleven are gathered along with the others. John's gospel tells us that tells us that the room where they were gathered is locked, which is important to note because as these two men are talking and sharing about how they had seen Jesus in the midst of that, Jesus suddenly appears. And they think he's a ghost. Like, how else can you explain the doors are locked and all of a sudden someone appears in our midst? But Jesus shows them his nail-scarred hands and feet and he asks for something to eat because spirits can't eat. And Jesus eats in front of them, proving to them that Jesus is alive. The empty tomb the message to these women Jesus is alive. The Emmaus Road, Jesus showing up and physically demonstrating the fact that he is alive. And now, scene three in this locked room where Jesus appears I am alive. Now, Beyond the fact that Jesus is alive, we should ask, what does that mean for us? Why is that significant? You could stop here and think, okay, there's maybe some sort of historical reality to the fact that Jesus is alive. Why is that significant? Which leads us now to our second and last primary theme this morning. The first is that Jesus is alive. Secondarily, this morning, salvation is accomplished. and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Friends, Jesus' death and burial and resurrection was all a part of the plan of God before there was time. We saw this in the angelic Message to the women at the tomb. We saw this in Jesus' Bible study on the Emmaus Road. And now we see it here in Jesus' very words to his closest followers. God's plan always included saving his people by his own sacrifice. Which means, again, that Jesus' death and resurrection was not accidental. Accidental. God was not trying to pull together some sort of salvation narrative as we may try to pull together maybe a meal when it's the day before grocery day and we're just trying to go through the refrigerator and see what we can pull out and kind of throw together. But just like the guys on the Emmaus Road, these followers of Jesus in this locked room don't really see this until the Lord opens their minds to understand scripture In fact, this follows on what we saw last week in Luke 11 about those who see Jesus' signs and see Jesus' miracles and think, bravo, Jesus, show us something else, but yet they don't truly see through the signs to see what the signs are meant to reveal, what they're meant to point to, how Jesus actually is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Friends, it is possible to know about Jesus. It is possible to believe that Jesus existed. Like history will affirm that Jesus really existed. History, even non biblical history, affirms that Jesus actually died. And even much of it affirms that Jesus was reported to have come back to life. Secular, non believing, Historians will affirm that there was widespread circulation in the first century that Jesus was dead and came back to life. And it is possible to affirm that and yet not be actively trusting in God the Son, not actually be saved. The Bible says that on our own we are blind to the identity of Jesus, blinded by our own sin. Salvation, therefore, requires the Spirit of God opening our spiritual eyes and opening our minds so that we may see and believe. And you may be thinking this morning, well, what exactly is the Spirit opening our eyes and minds to see? If I can affirm that Jesus really lived and Jesus really died and Jesus really came back to life without truly believing on or believing in Jesus as my Savior, what, what's the difference? What, what is it that God? I need God to open my eyes to see and embrace? And verse 46 helps us with that. Thus it is written, Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Friend, we see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. We see that he suffered and died and rose from the dead three days later. And we see that these are not merely historical facts but rather they are theological grounds for our salvation. Our salvation hangs on the fact that Jesus is the Christ who died in the place of sinners. And he rose from the dead, paying the debt of sin in full. Once again, just so that we don't miss this, Jesus' life and death and resurrection has a physical reality to it that is significant, is essential. It has a historical reality to it that is significant and essential. But it also has a theological element to it that is significant and essential. That we believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. In my place condemned he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. That he rose from the dead, defeating death as a first fruit that we talked about this morning, very early on Facebook Live in 1 Corinthians 15, as a first fruit, as a prototype of my resurrection and your resurrection. As evidence that he has the power to bring the dead back to life because he was brought back to life. And all who trust in him experience that Even this morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you have turned from your sin of unbelief to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope, as your only salvation, you have already experienced a portion of the resurrecting power of God because he has taken your cold, dead heart and he has made you alive in him. And one day we look forward to Jesus Christ's return when we will receive resurrected bodies, like his glorified resurrected body. And so what happens when we acknowledge that as the, the Lord opens our minds and opens our hearts to see that and understand that? Maybe that's where you're at this morning, friend. Like maybe you're thinking, okay, I, even as we've been worshiping together this morning, as we've been talking this morning, as as God's word is proclaimed this morning, feel like my eyes are just being opened. And I realize I, I came into this place today, or I tuned in online, and I am not, I am, I was not trusting in Jesus as my savior. I affirmed maybe that he existed. Maybe even I affirmed that he died. I affirm that, that that resurrection Sunday is somehow about Jesus being raised from the dead along with some other things, but but I see this morning that I am a sinner and I need the saving grace and the glorious freedom, and the incredible hope and joy that only Jesus Christ can give. How do I access that? Verse 47 tells us that we access that. We respond to that by repenting, by turning away from unbelief and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we'll refer to repenting from sin, which is true, but the primary sin that we are repenting of is the sin of unbelief. We turn from unbelief to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We trust that I should have died on the cross, you should have died on the cross, we should face an eternal separation from God because of our sin and yet in kindness and grace God God poured out his wrath at the cross that we may be saved. Anyone who believes. We turn and we are reconciled. We are given new life. We are given eternal life. In fact, sometimes Christians, and if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe you've heard Christians talk about eternal life as though it's something that happens someday out there. But for Christians, we believe that eternal life is, is begins at the moment of new birth. It begins at the moment where God transforms our heart and makes us new. And we experience life eternal and life full and life free. It doesn't mean that we have health, physical health all the time or that we have monetary wealth all the time. It doesn't mean we live without suffering, even as we heard from the testimony this morning from Hitesh and Emily. Right? Regardless of what may come, we know that our Savior lives. We know that our hope is in eternity with him. So our eternal life begins at conversion. And that can be your hope reconciled to God this morning. That can be your joy, your indestructible joy, a joy that cannot be dimmed or taken away by the trials and the suffering or the circumstances or the disappointments or the fears or the anxieties of life or even death itself. So friends, salvation comes through the glorious work of Jesus, our Savior through his life and his death and his resurrection, all according to the prophecies. His resurrection that defeated death, that put an end to death for all who believe. And we may experience physical death, and all of us will if the Lord does not first come back. But our certainty is that our true life will end continue on will exist in fullness of joy because Jesus is alive. If you are not trusting in Jesus this morning, I would ask you, I would implore you to use a biblical word on behalf of Of God to be reconciled to him through Christ Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. That through Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We might be reconciled. We may be made new. We may be given an inheritance and a hope and a joy. Undimmed by anything. Would you pray with me.